Welcome to Color Me Dead. This is a true crime podcast, and we talk about murder and fuckery most foul in detail while using the darkest of humor. If you don't like words like fuck and cunt, then you probably shouldn't listen. But if you do, then join us while we fuck your feelings. Oh my god. Well, welcome back, boys and girls. Before we dig in on this, because we promised you guys that we were going to re-record the original 24 episodes, right? We've taken them away based on legal advice from our attorney, and we are now putting them back. And before we get into the meat and taters of this here episode, you can check us out at Age of Radio. It's ageofradio.org slash colorbedead. Yes. I am 100% sure I fucked that up. Go check us out. You guys can donate to our Patreon. You can check out our sister shows. You can uh, shop the bazaar. Check out episodes. Clear back to number one now. Yay for us. Yay. So if you're just starting with number one, it will all make sense to you. If you didn't listen to the... Disclaimer. Opening intro. Intro. Yay. Words. Yeah. If you haven't listened to the intro, go do that. You'll be a little bit less lost. Hanging out with us is back and forth throughout time. Sorry. You can also check us out at Patreon. At our Patreon, you can make a one-time donation. You can make a monthly donation. And with your donation comes perks. Everything from stickers clear up to like hoodies. If you want to do that, you should. Patreon.com slash Color Me Dead podcast. If you guys are interested in picking up some merch, but you don't want to make that monthly donation, you can do so. ColorMeDeadPod.threadless.com You can find literally anything. Check that out, or if you want very exclusive, then you have to go to LeGraw Creations. She's amazing. Anything, anything you can think of, she can make it. If it's Color Me Dead stuff, you go to LeGrawCreations.com, and there is a tab on the top that says Color Me Dead. Shop Color Me Dead. Now, that stuff you will not be able to find anywhere else. She did all of the designs just specific for us that are on that page. You will not get them anywhere else. Nowhere. And she Nowhere. sent us socks. And she sent us socks. And I have socks. Yeah, so she's amazing. You'll find out about her in later episodes, but since, you know, we're kind of going, we're quantum leaping. Quantum leaping. Yep. That's, I like it. Uh, also, if you guys want to reach out to us, share a survivor story. If you have some information on, like, a current case, you want something looked into, send us an email to colormedadpodcast at gmail.com. You can also send us snail mail. Don't send us evidence. You can send that to P.O. Box 1610, Vernal, Utah, 84078. It's the fan box. Send it to the fan box! One of our listeners sent us a different thing to call it, and I already forgot what it was. I was trying to remember so I could say it. The Keeper of Skulls. The Keeper of Skulls. I can't remember. There was a couple of them that were funny that cracked me up. Anyway. Are you ready? We're ready. Should we actually, should we actually do this? Oh, my God. All right. So this episode is picked as the original first episode because it's in our home state. I wasn't part of the podcast when this was started, so I'm just making shit up, and I've decided that that's why it was picked, okay? So it is also not very well known outside of Utah. It's hard to find a lot of information on this from what I found. Uh, Just so that we're very clear, I have a coworker that I actually really enjoy his company. His name is Casey. Um... He is in his like mid twenties. Yeah, you know what I mean, like twenty five ish area where we where we think we are, but we're not. Correct. Mm-hmm. Had never heard of the High Five Murders. Yay! Grew up here. 
I hadn't either till you guys covered it before me. I was like, oh my God. So anyway, it takes place in Ogden, Utah, which is about three and a half hours away from us. It's called the Hi-Fi Shop is where it took place. Most of the research used for this episode comes from the book Victim written by Gary Kinder. Um, this book is a different approach than most because it comes from the victim's point of view and is it's like heart-wrenching. It tears your damn heart out because it tells the whole story of just the one kid. I'll talk we'll talk about him later. <laughs> just the one kid of his, you know, journey and it is sad it's from his family's point of view and oh my god it's just it's hard but it's a really really good read so I would suggest it it's on audible it's on kindle or you can buy the actual book I definitely definitely recommend it and I found out about it from Heather Rottweiler when she was doing our little book club this is the first book in the book club because at that time, the original episode was still up. So this horrible story takes place on April 22nd, 1974. Courtney Nesbitt is how I believe we're going to say it. but he, He's the one that the book is about. Was a 16-year-old muscular boy with blonde hair and stood nearly six feet tall. He had straight white teeth, gray-green eyes, and freckles. He was walking to Inkley's oh and was God. extremely happy. <laughs> How long has it been since you've heard that? A long time. So Whoa. who doesn't know the children? Was Inkley's just a Utah thing or was it? I, I don't know if it was like a Western. Yeah. Like West Coast. I don't know. But I think Inkley was like Utah. Yeah, that's what I thought. It's like the training table. Yeah. And it was a place where you took your film to get developed because yeah. we didn't have digital cameras and phones where we can just have all of our pictures. We actually had to wait to see those sons of bitches. Oh my if, God. So he was walking into Inkley's cause he was getting some pictures developed and like, and nobody is going to have to do that anymore. He just had his first solo flight in an airplane. So he was happy as could be happy, happy. Cause he's 16. He just flew an airplane by himself. He wanted to be an aeronautical engineer when he grew up. His flight instructor said that he, he had what it took to do it, too. His instructor never told his students when they would fly solo for the first time so that they didn't overthink it. So his family didn't even know that he had his first solo flight because it, he would, like, show up and be like, all right, today's the day, go, instead of this is the day you're going to do it so he can sit there and have anxiety and fucking worry about it, right, right. Like, like we all would. And so his family didn't know either, just in case, so they didn't spill the beans. He ran into a girl that he used to live by when he was in grade school. Her name was Cora. They talked about old times and when, and then went in to pick up their pictures together. Courtney was getting slides of his parents' trip. Okay, here's a new thing we need to explain. If you've seen the movie It, you'll know what slides are because they put the slides in the projector and look at the slides. But that was a different way to look at your pictures. You had your film that you took in, got it developed, got an actual picture. You had your slides that you could take in. Did you have to have an, a special camera or did they just take, they just took the film, right? And kind of wrapped it in a little, mm -hmm. like a border, a well, frame so you, type thing. You always got your film negatives. Like, so if you wanted pictures to be reprinted, mm -hmm. they could do that. And like, they would, they would give you your printed pictures and then your negatives. And if you wanted your negatives turned into slides, you could do that as well. 
And you had to have a projector to look at the slides. Right. A special, yeah. And you could, it was like a click. It was like the most satisfying thing. Go watch it if you haven't, just so you can see the slides. <laughs> but that's what he was going to get. When they got finished, Cora asked Courtney where he was going next. He told her he was going to the hi-fi shop and asked if she would like to go with him. She said yes because she had a crush on Courtney's cousin, Brent, who owned the shop. So she was like... Why, yes, I do think I would like to go. You know how us girls think? We're like, well, shit. When they got to the shop, Cora asked Courtney if Brent was there, and he said no because he was out of town and that Stan was working. Cora was like, all right, never mind. I'm going to go home. My mom and dad, they need need their car, and it has to be home by 6, and it was already like 10-2 already, so she was cutting it pretty close like you do when you're a teenager. Note to self, when you have teenagers and you need the car at 6, tell them you need it at 5. Because if they're like me, they'll roll in at 5.15 and be like, what? I was (laughs) close enough, right? I haven't changed. When Courtney walked into the hi-fi shop, he knew something wasn't right. The clerks, Stan and Michelle, would have been getting things ready to close because the store closed at 6. Courtney walked towards the back of the store to the door that led out to the alley because that's where his car was parked. He parked his car there because he didn't want to go, like, pay for parking. Apparently, that's a shitty place to park. So he was, like, parked in the alley and asked the guys, is it okay if I park back here? I just got to go to Inkley's and I'll be back. So they knew that he was in and out. So he was going back through to go back out to the alley. And on his way there, he saw in this... um, sound room that was right before the door that led to the alley he saw stan there courtney told stan thanks for letting me park behind the store like you know on his way out and stan replied stop courtney and he was like oh shit what the fuck he was reaching for the doorknob and stan yells again stop courtney he's gonna shoot you that'll make your asshole pucker yeah dude just a touch he then heard another voice that said take another step and i'll put a bullet in you Courtney stopped. A tall black man was pointing a gun in his face. Courtney threw his hands up. The slides he had picked up at Inkley's fell to the floor. Now, normally I wouldn't say black men or whatever, but that plays a big role in in this story later on. And it's also Utah in the 70s. Just so that you guys know, we, we usually try not to paint colors on people. And yes, and that is the only reason that we are actually, it's, it, there's a reason we have to do that. Yeah. So you'll find (laughs) that out. Courtney was soon falling down the stairs and being kicked and punched. So there were stairs right there. After he told him he was going to shoot him, a forcibly made him fall down the stairs and he was being kicked and punched and ended up on the floor in the basement where another man was waiting. This other man was also a a black man. He was short, about five, six-ish. He strutted across the room and tied up Courtney with speaker wire. His hands were bound behind his back and his feet together. He was laying parallel to the wall to the right of the stairs with his head towards the far corner. He had been in the basement many times. It was decorated to be like a den. It was like a, a cute, not like cute. a living room. I was going to say man, a cute man cave. Cute man. Use oh, different cute. words. A, Bitchin' man cave. A fetch man cave. Bitch, just say man cave. Okay. A man cave. Or a bitchin' man cave. Yeah. I think I'm going to make a sign for the basement. This is bitchin' man cave. (laughs) Jesus. 
However, this time was different because he was tied up. Stan was a tall, husky 20-year-old that was great with electronics and sound systems, and he was great with customers, so he was really an asset to the hi-fi store. Michelle, who was the other clerk, was a 19-year-old girl. She was small, about 5'5", with short brown curly hair. She'd only been working at the shop for about a week. She was tied up next to Stan on the floor of the basement. So Courtney could hear them upstairs. They were loading up a van. All of this was so that they could rob the store. The men had threatened to shoot everyone if anything had gone wrong. Back at the Nesbitt house, Courtney's mom, Carol, was wondering where he was. He was supposed to be home at 6 for dinner so that he could go to ground school at Weber University at 7, and he never showed up. She knew he was going to pick up the slides, so thought maybe he had gotten caught up talking to Brent at the hi-fi shop. His dad, Byron, had come home. He was an obstetrician known as a silver fox. Nikki, pull yourself together. Well, sorry. (laughs) Carol was nervous and wanted to know where Courtney was, but Byron and Courtney's brother Gary seemed way more relaxed about it. Now it was about 8 p.m. Everyone was quiet in the basement, and as they listened to the footsteps up here, they heard a light shuffle. The taller man was at the top of the stairs, pointing, pointing his gun up. The shorter man was crouching at the top of the stairs with his gun at eye level. The taller man yelled, hey, what are you doing down there, man? What do you, oh, excuse me. The taller man yelled, hey, what are you doing here, man? Oren Walker had shown up looking for his son, Stan. The two men took him into the basement at gunpoint. Shortly after that, two shots were fired. Luckily, nobody had been shot. The shorter man had fired two shots into the wall. The taller man asked, asked him what he did that for as Courtney and Michelle began pleading for their lives. Stan and his father told the two men to just take the stuff, whatever they wanted. You know, we're, we can't identify you. Yeah, take, they're like, take the shit and go. Just go. We won't tell anybody who you are. Were they in disguises? No. No, and from what I understand, they, they had a plan to just not leave any witnesses. Well, that would be the smart thing to do. Honestly, I'll bet you that those people probably would have gone home and like prayed and stayed with their families and then called the police later. Like enough time for you to skedaddle if you'd really wanted to. Right. Because you had to make up for the equipment that's not yours. Right. You're going to have to file a claim. Yeah. But you could also say like, oh, somebody kicked the back door in last night. My kids didn't lock it all the way. Bunch of shit was stolen. I don't fucking know. They locked us in the basement and they left with all the shit. No, they could seriously say that they weren't even there. That yeah. somebody came in the alley, kicked the door in while nobody was there in the middle of the night, stole a bunch of shit, and bounced. This is the fucking like 70s, 70s. and 80s. Yeah, you know what I'm saying? Like we didn't have we didn't have security guards. We didn't have like surveillance. Sur- yeah, surveillance cameras. But, like, even, like, the the CCTVs, like, the closed circuit mm-hmm. TVs and shit, like, that was stuff that you didn't really have unless you were really wealthy, and perhaps it was at, like, a shopping mall. And even then, it was only at the jewelry store. You know right. what I mean? Like, where it fucking mattered. Well, even though this, yeah, this was a, a an electronic. go break into fucking C's candy. I might. I but. would. That's <laughs> the first fucking, fucking place back. I would go. Right. But it's an electronic shop, so they are more likely to have the higher, you know. Sure. You would think that they might have that because they have the technology that most of the people there know probably know how to use it. But they didn't. It was 1974. 
ish. Yeah, nineteen seventy four. But that's the thing. Just because you sell the shit doesn't mean you can afford to install the shit. Like, yeah, that's you know, people that sell fucking Lamborghinis don't necessarily fucking own one. No, like, actually, they probably do. But the point being, you know what we're saying. I'm trying to make a point here, and I'm not doing very well, but fuck you anyway. Point being, there were no cameras. Get the shit and fucking leave. So there, realistically, this whole episode could end here. <laughs> it could have. But if, it doesn't. Because what were the chances? Seriously. Put on a mask and go. They wouldn't have anything to go off. Go. Take the shit and go. Yeah. Like, I, for real. Like, I would take my family. Like, if they, if they had agreed to leave. Like, take the shit and go. And they were like, fuck it. You have to stay here. Blah, blah, blah. Like, we're going to watch, like, if you come out. But, but for real, like, as soon as the coast was clear, I'd have bounced home. I'd have been like, fuck that. Get in the fucking car. Like, tomorrow morning, I'm going to come back to this place. I'm going to call the cops and be like, oh, I don't know, man. Fucking door got kicked in. Who fucking knows? Or call the cops first thing in the morning. Yeah. Stay there. I don't know. But like humans do, instead of bouncing when they should have bounced... They are just going to get that. Yeah, they're just going to get that shovel and they're going to dig their fucking hole. Welp. The two guys decided to go and get something for them to drink. They had a bottle that was about a foot high in a brown paper bag. The tall man poured a thick blue liquid into a green plastic cup. Michelle had asked them what it was. They said it was vodka and a German drug that would make them fall asleep for a few hours. The short man chuckles. The short man then handed the cup to Oren and told him to give the liquid to the three people laying on the floor. Oren looked away. The tall man put a gun to his head. He didn't move. Well, when the gun's at your head, you don't usually tend to move. The short man put the cup down and tied up Oren with some cord and made him lay down. They left him face down on the floor while they went to the stairs and had a little powwow about what to do next. Jesus. The short one... The short one. We're going to call him the short one. The short feller. The short one. Said he was a chicken and couldn't go through with it. He had also been booked before, so his fingerprints and identity were on record. We'll talk about this more in a little bit. As they were talking about this, someone pulled up. Carol Nesbitt had gone looking for her son. She was upset that her husband and other son wouldn't do anything. They wouldn't help her go look for him. Um, the husband, Byron, was on call. He was an OBGYN, so he was on call. So he's like, I need to stay by the phone because this is pre-cell phones, pre, I think even pre-pagers. I'm not exactly sure. So he had to stay home and stay by the phone. And then the other son had like gone to the movie or something. They were just like, eh, he's just a kid. I would be flipping the fuck out. Like he I was supposed to be home are like, meh. Yeah, he's fine. Meh. He'll be fine. So the mom does what I would have done and like, I'm going to fucking look for him then. Yeah, oh, if yeah. you're not going to help me, I'm going. Which ends up being suck for the husband and we'll get there. So she had gone to Weber State Campus looking for him because I think he had a class there. When she didn't find him there. or yeah, no, he was supposed to go to ground school at yeah. seven. Yeah, ground school. I remember now. He was supposed to go to ground school at 7, and so that's why she went looking there for him. When she didn't find him there, she went home and called a bunch of his friends, and none of them had seen him since after school. She was in tears, explaining to her husband and son, other son, what was going on, and they just didn't seem too worried. Byron was like, 
uh, sorry, I'm on call. I need to stay home. Is Can't that part of that anywhere. like boys will be boys thing? I think so. Cause I could totally see Clinton doing that. If I was like, dude, Calvin was supposed to be home. He's not here. They'd be like, right. eh, boys. I think I would have panicked too. I, yeah. I don't know what I'm going to do when my child can go roam freely about the cabin. I'm going to be like, where are you? Oh my God. Yeah. Cell always, phones with um, yeah, location sharing. Life is so good for us now. I, I know. I know. Cause I always think the worst, like what's the worst that could possibly happen. Uh, when Carol got to the hi-fi shop, she found herself looking down the stairs right into a gun barrel. Cause I'm sure she went in and was like, hello, 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 mm -hmm. go down to look at the stairs. And there's a gun. They asked her what she was doing there. And she said she was looking for her son. Let's just stop and say that this whole fucking time. They didn't think to lock the goddamn door. How many times did it happen now? We're at number two of someone coming in and they haven't locked the motherfucking door. An unpredicted visitor comes into the shop not once, but twice, you slow learners. You, you guys aren't good criminals. You are bad criminals. Very bad. <sighs> you know what that reminds me of? Don't touch that. It's hot. And then you touch it anyway? And you grab it anyway. Yep. So she said she was looking for her son. The short man runs up the stairs like in a fit of rage and makes her go down the stairs. He was finally smart enough now. To go lock the front door. The short man took Carol over by Courtney and pressed her down by her shoulders, forcing her to the floor. He tied her up and then went and got the liquid. He turned back to Carol and propped her into a sitting position. He then forced her to drink the liquid. She choked and coughed and the liquid was coming out of her nose and mouth. He laid her back down as she continues to heave and spit because the shit is burning everything she has inside her. He did the same to Courtney. The next was Stan and then Oren. However, Oren didn't swallow it. He was smart enough to be like, mm, I'm going to pretend. I saw what everybody else did, so I'm just going to pretend. Um, he spit it out while he was pretending to vomit. So he was smart enough to do that. He guessed the liquid was hydrochloric acid. Mm. Stan was then forced to drink more. The shorter man decided that he would cover their mouths with masking tape, masking tape, to keep them from spitting out the liquid. He is a fucking idiot. You are a few, few fries short <laughs> of a happy meal. But they had too much sweat, vomit, and spit on them to make the tape Dude, stick. Dude, nothing is going to stick, not even duct tape. Like, no. you could have gotten Gorilla tape and tried to, get, like, mm, mm, mm. No, when they're spitting out this nasty mm -hmm. shit of which we will reveal what it is later, you can think about what you think it is. If you already know the story, just pretend, just don't tell anybody else, okay? Keep it a secret. Courtney was in pain from the cord he was tied up with. His skin was breaking, but his throat and esophagus and stomach were burning from the liquid that he was forced to drink. He heard one of the other men ask... The other one, what time it was? It was nine o'clock. They had been tied up for near, for nearly three hours now. The men began wiping them wiping down shelves. I imagine this was their attempt at Trying ridding to... ridding fingerprints from anything that they had touched. <clears throat> um, they put on surgical gloves and they took Oren's wallet. Now there was only five dollars in there, but they decided to take the whole wallet. They took all of the men's wallets. The women both had on diamond rings and Carol was wearing a Rolex. The jewelry was left on them, but they took their purses. So 
Why the fuck? I don't know. Um, because ladies generally, I mean, we keep our, I mean, in the seventies, you may have had cash and a coin purse. Um, yeah. And probably a checkbook. Yeah. If you had a charge card, like it's not like credit cards were today. You could, you like had the paper member. Oh yeah. They and they would the just imprint <laughs> of the card and shit. And they so, didn't know if it was good or bad. They didn't know if they were no. getting hosed or not. You could no. be like, oh, there's not a fucking thing on oh, there, no. but I'm leaving with $10,000. Oh, shit. shit. You shit could find you, me. <laughs> you could fucking write a check back then to a closed account. Yeah. Nobody knew until mm-hmm. six to eight weeks later. <laughs> <laughs> You're lucky I swallowed. <laughs> you almost got me. But um, things that would have been easily sold. Oh, for sure. Because they didn't have the tracking shit back then like they oh, do huh. now. Mm-mm. No, no, no. But diamonds and a Rolex, for real? You left a Rolex on a person? Mm-hmm. That would probably be the first thing I took because it would be the easiest thing to sell on the street. Oh, yeah. Jewelry always is. Yeah. It's like... Uh, all those TV shows and all the movies where you're like walking around fucking Central Park in New York and somebody like flings their jacket open and homeboy's got like Rolexes, Rolexes and, shit. and shit dangling from his fucking jacket. Yeah. I'm actually kind of disappointed that never happened ever. Like in all my life and all the places I've nobody ever lived. Nobody ever came up to you with nobody a Rolex ever, coat. No, nobody ever flipped their overcoat open and showed me their stolen shit or their wieners. Instead Thank they God started the sending wieners. them. Yeah. They just sent them through fucking Instagram. Please stop doing that. No more. No more wieners. <laughs> Back at the ranch. Uh, the men began arguing in the corner. The short one said that he couldn't do it because he was scared and then said, give me about 30 minutes. The tall man had gone upstairs and out the door. Now back at home, Byron was starting to get worried about his wife and his son. And now it was after 10 o'clock and he knew that they should be home. Where was this panic six hours ago? I know. I think it's adorable well, that like his wife, like his sweetheart's been gone. Like, um, kids go out, kids will be kids, wife goes missing, and then suddenly you're worried. That's pretty much how it goes. At this particular juncture, he's, he's starting to get really worried about both of his people. Um, back at the shop, the tall man had made his way over to Carol. He shot her in the back of the head and blood had splattered right by Courtney. The man moved to Courtney and did the exact same thing to him. Hey, chicken shit. The least you could do. I shoot him in the shoot face. Shoot me in the fucking face and look me in the eyes while you do it. If I had enough balls, because you never know how you're going to act at that time. So yeah. I can't say what I would do, but I would roll over and be like, shoot me in the face, you big badass. If you're going to fucking, if you're going to execute me, at least have the goddamn decency to honor the fact that I was a living human being and look me in the fucking eyes when you kill me. You coward. You shit heel. I hate these two so much. You're a bad man. Just want you to know that you're, you're a bad, shitty criminal. You're a shitty criminal and a worse and man. A bad man. And you're a very bad man. He walked over to Orin and shot right next to his head. The bullet ricocheted back into the wall. The man stepped over Michelle and bent down to shoot Stan in the back of the head. <clears throat> he turned and ran back up the stairs. Michelle turned to Stan and asked if he was okay. Stan was still alive. He said, I've been shot. The man came back downstairs and shot Oren again, but he made sure this time that he didn't miss. Why did he miss the first time? Um, nerves? Just I, being it could, a dick. You know, it, it could have been nerves, but I... They could have been under the influence of something. Yeah. Um, who knows? So, Oren was shot... This time for real, 
but he didn't die. He fought very hard to stay lucid, doing times tables in his head and forcing himself to wiggle his fingers and toes. Listen, if I'm ever in that position, times tables aren't going to be it. Because I will not do well. I'm like Billy Bob. When he's like, you got to ask him true or false man's holding up some fingers, fingers. true or false. How many fingers am I holding up? Uh, Uh, sorry. You got to ask him true or false. All right. Michelle was the only one left. Now he moved to her and untied her, then pulled her to a standing position with the gun in his hand. He led her past Oren and into the far end of the basement. The short man made her get naked and then proceeded to rape her for the next 20 minutes. When he was finished, he led her to the bathroom to pee. He made her return to the spot on the floor by Stan and Oren. She was still naked, but not tied up. The short man went upstairs. Now, just a little background on this 19-year-old girl. She's engaged. She's 19. She's engaged. So we know she's probably a virgin. Mm -hmm. Not that that makes rape worse but it does not you know nothing makes it worse you know what i'm trying to say here but how awful for this poor girl she's been saving herself more than likely i don't know for sure for yeah, her, you do. her for her if she's engaged at 19 in utah she's probably saving herself. She i don't know i was it. engaged at 19 in utah and i wasn't saving myself so mm. Mm. i don't know eh let's be honest with each other yes yeah, she was yeah, she was. And so, yeah, it just, it's make horrifying it no matter what. I'll bet she had never even used a tampon before. Oh, no, because, yeah, you didn't, you don't Mm-mm. use tampons Mm-mm. unless you're in Utah. Mm-hmm. You don't use a tampon because it divergenizes you. It breaks your hymen. Mm-hmm. Your, your, your maiden head is what they used to call it. Oh, wow. Uh-huh. While he was gone, he asked Oren if he was... Oh, she asked Oren if he was okay. He didn't say anything. He opened one eye to signal that he was okay and then closed it and continued to play dead. So he gave her the, yes, I'm okay, but don't don't make it known that I'm okay. Wink, right. wink. Nod, nod. Mm-hmm. The men came downstairs and grabbed Oren's neck to see if he had a pulse. And then they let go and he heard a gunshot. And Michelle moaned, and then it was quiet. He soon felt a cord being slipped around his neck because they realized that he was still alive. They're like, fuck. They probably saw him breathing. Yeah. Yep. And I know that his pulse probably wasn't super heavy because he had been through a lot, but uh, clearly it was enough. And so they shot Michelle, put cord around his neck to try to kill him some more. The man tried to lift his body off the ground by the cord. That was wrapped around his neck. Oren was able to clench his muscles enough to get enough air through, and he stayed alive. However, this wasn't the end for him. The man put a ballpoint pen in his ear Mm -hmm. and kicked it into his head. He kicked it three times, and on the third kick, Oren felt it enter his throat. Now, it doesn't say it in this book, but I read that he said, why don't you fucking die? Yeah. Why won't you just fucking die? Just fucking die already. Yeah. Jesus Christ, just well, die. like when he kicked that pencil, like he kicked the big pen into his fucking ear. So he kicked it. And then when he kicked it again, it like me. Yeah, it went down. And it like started to follow. Cause you know, your ears uh-huh. run anyway. And he eventually on that third kick, he kicked it and it fucking came out the side of his goddamn neck. Like 
kick, kick, kick. And then it like exited back here. So yeah. So there's that. Yeah. Uh, so they were hoping it would go into his brain and kill him. Right. Did no. not do that. No. Like how, how stupid do you have to be that it takes this much to kill someone when you have a gun, when you have people tied up, it's not like you're in a fight. I've never tried to kill anybody, but if I'm going to, I'm <laughs> going to come prepared and I'm going to do it right. You had guns, dude. Like, how hard was this? Did like, you... I don't want to be rude or unkind. I'm not victim shaming. I am pointing some fingers at these really shitty criminals. Yeah, I'm not victim they... shaming, but those criminals, <clears throat> Jesus. Here's the gig, okay? You had fucking guns, dude. You had one job. Steal the shit. Leave no witnesses. Guy told you I wouldn't identify you. You can leave. Like, fucking go. Take my shit and go. You didn't do that. Therefore, your plan to wipe out all your witnesses, you had a fucking gun. Why not a knife? Where was your knife? Like, go slit his throat. I mean, these guys were idiots. And not that I wanted the guy today, but after going through all of that. And it's a good thing that he didn't die and will get there but god damn dudes come the fuck around well as he swallowed the pen rose up and down like it would Mm -hmm. move so he had to probably be careful when they were there to not swallow the man left again the basement was now dark there were no more footsteps upstairs it was late so there was no light coming in and the naked light bulb that was down there originally was off Stan and Michelle were face down. Carol had rolled over onto her back at some point. Courtney had twisted and pointed his body towards the stairs. He was trying to crawl to the stairs, but it is like gurgling as he's trying to breathe. It's just like gurgling because everything's burning in there from the shit they had to drink. About 1030. Probably his own fucking pus and blood, dude. That's chemical burn. Yeah, it was chemical burn, and it's nasty. Like, they went into detail in the book, and I was like, yeah. no. Like, remember that scene in Fight Club when he pours the fucking acid on Homeboy's hand, and it's sitting there bubbling mm-hmm. and just eating mm-hmm. shit? Mm-hmm. That's happening to their insides. Insides, yes. Ugh. Mm-hmm. Ugh. So about 1032 police officers, Kevin Youngberg, who was a rookie, poor guy, that had been in uniform for 32 days. Oh, fucking we this is This is the shittiest day that you have picked to be a rookie. And Gail Bowcut drove past the alley to investigate some unknown trouble, I guess. I don't know if it was this or... Yeah, it, had been, it was this that had been called in. There was a heavyset boy standing at the door of the shop, and he yelled to the cops, They're inside! That's my titty. My titty tat. She's Can I pitch a titty? She's in her psycho mode right now. She's either really calm and chill and awesome, or she's a fucking crazy bitch. And she's old as shit. She is. She's 13. The officers entered in the rear entrance. They saw empty shelves and bare wires. There was a man and a woman walking back and forth near the front of the shop. The man had blood in his hair and a pin in his ear. It was Oren. He told the cops that there were four people downstairs and that they had all been shot. They rushed down the stairs and they found Courtney. He was lying on his back, looking at the ceiling, and the noise he was making was absolutely horrifying. As they moved their flashlights, they saw each body and the same red scars on their faces and bullet holes in their heads. Bocut thought it was a joke. He was waiting for actors to open their eyes and see that they were just 
<clears throat> testing them to see how fast they could get there. But this was reality, not a joke. There was blood and vomit everywhere. I could see how he would think it was a joke because he's with the rookie. They're like, somebody just staged this. The rookie's going to see it. Right. They want to see, you know, they were testing us, our response time. They wanted to scare the rookie, blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. Nope. Got you good, you rookie fuck. I bet they wish they would have heard that. Got you good, rookie. Mm -hmm. Like, could you imagine this dude signed up to be a? He's like, I'll pull people over. I'll give him some tickets and my shit, dude. I'm gonna patrol downtown. I'm gonna, I'm gonna chase the kids off the hill where they're trying to have a bonfire. And what the police academy is? What six months or am I way off? Is it nine? I, I honestly don't know. I don't really either. But it's not. I know it's not over a. Okay, I don't know it's not over a year. I think <laughs> it's about a year or, or less. Where's the fucking phone? Right. Okay, so the police academy varies by the different ages, agencies. <clears throat> it usually takes about six months. Um, it says 13 to 19 weeks. So perhaps that depends. Okay. Like if you're going to be part of the special drugs Unit. or domestic violence or right. whatever, whatever. I yeah. don't even know what kind of departments. Department. Fire department. <laughs> Youngberg kept saying, what the hell is happening over and over again? He got sick. His brain got fuzzy. He told Bocut they needed an ambulance. Oren told them he had already called an ambulance. Youngberg turned back to Oren and asked him, who did this to you? He told them it was two black men. And like we said before in the 70s, to say that it's like, oh, bing. I know exactly where to look. I know that I only have 10 real victims or victims. Excuse suspects. me. I only suspects. Fuck words. Mouth make them. Another officer showed up and Bo cut told him to call for assistance because there was a bunch of dead people down there. As Youngberg checked the victims for any sign of life, he came across Michelle. He saw the ring on her finger on her right hand and it had a tiny gold ring with a little red stone on it. His wife once had an identical ring. The image of her right hand would haunt him for years. See, that's the shit I'm talking about. The shit that they see. He sees a ring that's just like his wife's ring on this 19-year-old girl that just got raped and murdered. Dude, how do you un like how do you unfuck that out of their brains? Out I just brain. got full body chills. Could you admit every time he looks at his wife's ring, he's gonna see her dead laying there? Uh, you dude, know? I would legit go home to my wife and be like, I'll fucking replace that, but you gotta get rid of it. This is the goal. Sorry. We're done wearing this ring. This yeah. is out. A new one is in. Yep. Yep. Mm. What do you want? You want a pet raccoon? <laughs> Take that fucking ring off. Like whatever you want. Get it off. The officers heard Oren looking through the tools and asked him what he was doing. He told them that the boy was his son and he needed to save him. He wanted to go cut him free. The officers told him that Stan was dead and that he should go outside and let them handle it down there. Mm-mm. I just got the full body chills again. I don't like it. Dude. I know. As a parent. And yeah. <sighs> all right. And I'm sure as a parent, he's thinking, I'm glad that I went through all of the bullshit that, that Stan got to just go pretty quicker than, you know, but not, he still suffered and his dad Immensely. still heard him suffer. And I, I know they left a lot of that out because his dad didn't talk about it a lot. Right. But he did talk about it some. And could you imagine having to tell the story of how your son died laying right next to you and there was not a goddamn thing thing you you could could do do about it? Nah, dude. Mm -mm. Oh, hard no. How about that? Hard fucking no. Yeah. 
fucking no. This this story gets me in the feels so fucking hard. <clears throat> yeah, dude. Well, okay. Before I start crying, hold on. Don't do it. Don't fucking do it. The officers, excuse me, let's go ahead and pretend we already read that. Officer Youngberg then walked over to Courtney. They thought he had been shot in the chest because of the noise he was making. They ripped his shirt off and saw that his lungs were collapsed, but there was no gunshot. They wanted to know why it sounded like he was drowning in his own blood. Hmm. Um, Because he was. Yeah. That noise. Yeah. They turned him over. The boy stared at him. The blood from his gunshot wound had stopped bleeding and turned into jelly. They turned him on his side to let the blood drain from his throat. They turned <clears throat> they turned to Carol next. She was still warm, still alive. They turned her to her side as well. The officer that showed up to the scene was a 17-year veteran. When he saw what was in the basement, he urgently called for backup. Paramedics showed up. Carol and Courtney were cut loose and put on stretchers. The officers wanted the paramedics to do things differently, so there was a little bit of arguing going on. During all of this, Youngberg was getting very sick. He was making his way to the back door when he found a twenty-five caliber bullet, still in the shell, still intact. They took pictures of that bullet. Sergeant White was in the alley smoking when Youngberg stumbled across him, gagging. Sergeant White yelled at him to start acting like an officer, but then told him that in his 17 years, this had been the most shocking thing he'd ever seen in his life, and that he would have gone to pieces when he was a rookie. He was probably in pieces himself. That's oh, why he's outside sure. smoking. For sure. I can see that happening. He's trying to tell him, pull your stuff together, man. But then, but he's out there just like fucking however. Sucking, on, sucking on a like camel stud. Yeah. Sergeant White handed him a cigarette and told him to smoke about it. Youngberg walked away smoking and then stopped and said, I don't know why I did that. I don't even smoke. <laughs> you do I, now. I probably would too. I'd be like, you know what? No, you know what? No, that's what we do now. We're we smoke and we now. drink coffee. Does this make it go away? Because Does I this take smoke. it off? Does this take the edge off? Oh, it'll make me sick. It'll make me sick and I'll think about something else. Perfect. Yeah. So how did they get found, you ask? Did you ask? It's funny you didn't ask, but let me tell you. Um, well, Oren had gone to the shop to check on Stan when he didn't show up at home for dinner. They had just bought a Jeep, and Oren thought that maybe Stan was having problems with it when neither one showed up back to the house. I guess I should have said that he went to go help him. I didn't word that very well. Sorry. When neither one of them showed up back to the house, Oren's wife and 16-year-old son went to look for them. They rang the doorbell at the back door, and that's when Oren heard um, heard him yelling and was like, call the police, call an ambulance. Like, when the 16-year-old heard his father yelling, he kicked in the door. Later, while Youngberg was talking to Oren, he thought that he just had a pen behind his ear. It wasn't until Oren swallows. He fucking swallowed and Youngberg saw the pen <gasps> rise and realized that it was in his ear. And he's just standing there talking, telling the story. Like, he's got the burns all over his mouth. He's right. been shot. Mm-hmm. He's been strangled. He's talking. And and then and they were like, oh, my God. There's a fucking pen in his ear. There's a pen in your ear. Right. Sir, I'm not sure if so, you're hey, aware. There's a fucking dart in your it's- neck. <laughs> right. You in the jugular. <laughs> You have a fucking pen in your ear. I don't know if you know this, or maybe you're just in so much pain from everything else, but there's a fucking pen in your ear. Just so you know. Just, hey, I wanted to bring this to your attention. Ah, 
Before you forget, you I just know? went off on a whole thought process that I hurt my own feelings again. Because, <laughs> like, yeah. what if the pin broke when it turned sideways and they're mm-hmm. trying to get it out? It's, like, jabbing in them. And I'm sure that happened because I'm I doubt sure it, it stayed intact. Oh, God. Stop oh, Stop thinking about things. Oh, my God. Yeah. Quit overanalyzing mm-hmm. some, some things. So, Oren was put into an ambulance and his wife and son were escorted to the hospital behind him. Once the ambulances were gone, Youngberg was taking down the license plate numbers of all the vehicles in the parking lot. As he was doing that, the press showed up. Back at the Nesbitt house, Byron was still hanging out on the couch when one of his friends from Salt Lake called on his personal line. They asked him what the hell was going on in Ogden. Byron said, nothing much. (laughs) You know, like, I don't know. The friend told him about the five people shot in his nephew's store. When the call was over, he dropped the phone. The thoughts of his wife saying there was something wrong went through his head. I bet this man never stopped beating himself up for that, for trying to tell her, everything's fine. You're just, you're overreacting. He's fine. He's just, he's doing his thing. I feel so bad for him for that. So bad. He got dressed and went to the shop. He pounded on the front door and nothing. He went into the back or around to the back where he saw his wife's and wife and son's cars there. He knew something bad had happened. There was an officer back there. The county prosecutor, Robert Newey, was who was back there. He and Byron had known each other for a long time. Byron tried to go in. He asked how many people were down there. They told him there were just two people down there now. Newey told him he couldn't go down. He told, he told Byron that his wife and son had been, had been down there, but they weren't down there anymore. Byron didn't believe him. He was finally allowed to go to the fourth step from the bottom to look around to see for himself that they weren't there. They knew that a woman and a boy had been taken to the hospital. Knew he didn't want him to drive, so he said he would call and find out what hospital they were in. However, Byron got in his car, took off, and headed to the hospital anyway. He's like, fuck this. I'm not waiting for you. I'm going to the goddamn hospital. Which was exactly what Nui was trying to avoid because he didn't want him driving in that state. You don't want someone driving that upset and erratic. Byron made it to the hospital and was frantically asking everyone about his family. So there's two hospitals out there, right? There's McKady and there's another one. And I forgot what it was called. Huh. In Ogden? In Ogden. Because the because Byron had... Um, I don't know what they're called, rights, practicing. He was able to practice in both hospitals, so he delivered babies in both hospitals. So I know that they weren't that far away because you have to live within a certain amount of time away from the hospital when you're on call. So he goes to the hospital frantically asking about his family. They told him that they were in ICU. A medical tech showed him the way. Byron asked him how his wife was. The tech told him that she was dead. Could you imagine being that poor tech? Like, well... She knows he's d- the the wife is dead, but, well, she's dead. Sorry, she, she died. He asked why they didn't call him, and they said that they had tried. So it was probably in the time that his friend called, and he was headed down to the hi-fi shop. He was then taken to Courtney's room. Courtney looked dead. His body was gray. Four people were working on him. Byron started rushing from cubicle to cubicle to find his wife, because now he's found his son. Even though he was in bad condition, he wanted to find his wife. He, well, he didn't want to believe that she was dead. The doctor stopped him and told him that Courtney had been shot in the head and it looked like he drank some sort of acid. Byron said, acid? Acid. 
Jess, what the hell is going on? What kind of nightmare is this? My God. Those are quotes of what he screamed in the hospital. Dr. Wallace told him that he wasn't exactly sure what happened, but Courtney had burns around his mouth and he was in severe pulmonary edema. They were shooting straight alcohol down his tube and they were getting very little oxygen Um, and his pupils were starting to react. So they weren't sure if he was going to live. Byron started asking about his wife and he had been told that she was already dead and maybe he didn't want to believe it and he had to see for himself. So Dr. Wallace finally put it together who his wife was and him and one of the nurses pulled him aside and tell him. Dr. Wallace asked Byron if his wife wore a jade ring on her right hand. He said that he got the ring for her in Hawaii and that she rarely takes it off. Dr. Wallace confirmed that she was dead and she had been taken to the morgue. When they pulled back the sheet to show him his wife, they hadn't cleaned her up and she looked awful. He said that he was, that he got a real pain in his chest. Hey, uh, little fun fact. Did you know that there are legitimate, um, like cartilages in your heart, right? Mm -hmm. And under extreme trauma, your heart can like, expound and dirt to dirt like anyway it's called dying of a broken heart you can actually like damage i I have yeah yeah so there's a legitimate condition where you break like you suffer trauma emotional trauma and it causes the heart to do some weird shit and you actually break the cartilage in there and you can legitimately die of a fucking broken heart i read that the other goddamn reddit dude i spent a lot of time on reddit's amazing place i don't even dare go there because i know what would happen Fuck, dude, I can sit and read it for goddamn hours. There's things to read. There's pictures in case I get bored and I can't fucking focus. There's movies. So he said that he got a, a real pain in his chest and he said that this is what actual heartbreak feels like. It aches and it hurts. And when he looked at her, he had a real pain in his heart. That's sad. I don't like it. I don't even want to think about that. No. When they were leaving the morgue, his knees had buckled. Dr. Wallace caught him from behind. They sat down. He thought about how the woman he loved... The woman he was married to for over 30 years was now gone. He thought about how one third of his family of six was now wiped out. Oh, yeah. That's a rough fucking go. Ew, God. Ow. Yeah. He finally pulled it together for a minute and started to think about Courtney, who was still alive for now. At McKady Hospital, Oren was getting the pen removed from his ear. Oh, God. What a wonderful. You're such a cheerful opener. Yay. Yay, that was cheerful. He had already been treated for the gunshot wound and for the chemical burns in his mouth, forehead, and shoulder. They had to keep the pen for evidence once it was removed. Oh, Lord. Uh, The fun part Mm -hmm. being that he was awake while it was removed. They couldn't put him under. Um, So the sad but real thing is there are several procedures that they actually, actually, they do need you coherent coherent like you have to answer questions once it was removed sergeant white came in to take his statement oren promised himself that if he lived he would not forget any details so i'm sure while he was doing times tables and shit he was details over and over and over in his head he described the men with every detail he could think of he described the van he described the van or as much of it as he could remember too the officers had a few suspects come to mind as they listened to the details Oren gave them, but nobody completely stuck out yet. That night, Courtney was struggling to stay alive. Dr. Reese, the surgeon, had to do everything he could think of. He started slicing his veins to test the gases. Um, so, like, they opened him up to let the gases release. Mm-hmm. Ugh. 
He had an IV catheter in his heart. There were antibiotics to fight infection, among so many other things. There was a team of people working on him for two hours. Byron watched as they worked on him. He felt completely helpless as he watched. He decided he should go over to McKay D. Hospital and ask Oren what happened in that basement. His brother, Byron's brother, who was also a doctor, and his sister-in-law had been called by one of the nurses to St. Benedict's to give him support. That's the hospital it was, St. Benedict's. St. Benedict's. Now, that's a house. That's That makes sense because I... Wouldn't have recalled that from that's no, yeah, I cannot remember what it was called. They arrived not too long after he had left to go to the McKay D hospital to talk to Oren. So the nurse who called them told them that Carol and Courtney had been shot, but when they were taken to Courtney's room, they couldn't believe what they saw. He was laying there gray, hooked up to machines. He had needles sticking out all over to try to decompress his veins and get the gases out. Dr. Reese told them that they didn't think Courtney. Court- Courtney would live. They were trying to decide if he had enough brain to save. Oh. Yeah. The bullet didn't go into his brain, but his oxygen supply was cut off to the brain for a good amount of time. The doctors warned him that um, they could be creating a monster if they keep him alive. So. Goddamn. How rough would that conversation be? Yeah. That's... Because I, I, I kind of understand what they're saying. Like, if you if you trap a person in their own mind like that, yeah. like, then you have a person that can't communicate, that can't gets confused, mm-hmm. that gets um, frustrated, lashes out, like... Yeah. So as they're taking him into surgery, that's what they say. We could possibly be creating a monster. Courtney's 25-year-old brother, Brett, and his wife were driving down the street when the ambulance passed them. His wife said she had a funny feeling of, that someone in their family was in there. And Brett was like, no, don't worry. That's, I don't know why you would think that. That's nobody in our family. That's a weird thing to say. Turns out the ambulance had his mother in it. Oh, wow. That was the one that was taking his mother to the hospital. So his wife had a good sense of, a good spidey sense. He was a scrub tech at McKady Hospital. He had already gotten home and in bed before he got the call from his supervisor to come down there. His sister, Claire, was also notified and came to the hospital. Courtney got out of surgery about 5 a.m. The brain wasn't as bad as they thought. However, it was the lungs that they were worried about from all of that. All the chemical Mm -hmm. and everything. While all of this was happening, Moore was thinking about possible suspects. He was going through other cases in his head. One that stuck out was a murder at Hill Air Force Base. An airman named Dale Pierre had killed another man by repeatedly stabbing him him in the face with a bayonet and then repositioning him on his couch. Yeah. Moore was six foot six and weighed 225 pounds. He was trained in hand to hat. Words are fun. Try again. Hat to hat. This is where you fight with your hats. Los Manos, hand-to-hand. <laughs> he was trained in hand-to-hand combat with the military before coming, becoming a police officer. He recalls bringing Pierre in to interrogate him about the murder. He seemed irritated by the questions. His answers to the questions seemed normal and not overthought. He had no emotion. He was just like, yeah, so, what? And what, bitch? Yeah. Moore remembers losing his shit on Pierre at one point, and that's when things started changing. 
A.K. Greenwood was part of the tactical squad that had gotten the call that night. When he showed up to the hi-fi shop, Youngberg told him uh, two pieces of info. He said that there were two black men in a light-colored van. An order was put out to pull over all vans in and around city limits. Light-colored van, dark-colored van, whatever, anything that contained two black men. They were like, get them. I, I am 100% sure that in any sort of database that was available, they literally looked up any black. Oh, I'm sure they did. And I, I guarantee you their homes, like whomever was of color and lived anywhere in the Salt Lake slash Weber Valleys, I guarantee you their homes were surveilled. Oh, yeah, they were. They definitely were um, because... Yeah. And then I don't, I, I'll bet you that that vehicle was literally any vehicle that contained a black man. Oh, yeah. So around 4 a.m., mm-hmm. a van was pulled over. It belonged to a black man that was well known. He had just been paroled for armed robbery. He was taken in and questioned, and he was shocked at the brutality of the murders. Greenwood had set up surveillance on a few houses around the city. Oh, like what I said that he thought might house two men, the two men in question. Greenwood was given all the manpower he needed to find these murderers. The morning after the murders, the police went on the radio and they had asked for any information leading to the arrest of the killers. Calls started to trickle in and then a lot more started to come in throughout the day. The afternoon, <clears throat> excuse me, that afternoon, two boys were going through dumpsters. <laughs> this is how wholesome Utah is. Probably not anymore, but back then. Oh, yeah. That afternoon, two boys were going through dumpsters to collect pop bottles. This was, this is still legit shit because you can get glass bottles here. And mm-hmm. we do, we do have glass recycling centers. But they were going through the dumpsters to find pop bottles to turn in for money so that they could get hamburgers and go watch movies and play games at the BX. Hey, I just want to acknowledge everyone that's freaking out because we call it pop and not soda. Continue. So while the boys are going through the dumpsters. They found a purse, but that was empty. Then they found another purse, and that one had credit cards and 11 cents in it. Hey, 11 cents, you guys are halfway to that fucking burger. You basically found Actually, my wallet. Actually, I wonder how much a burger was for McDonald's in 1970 fucking, where are we, four? Four. Yeah. I bet you it wasn't more than 10 cents. Not much more. They looked for more wallets and purses or anything that they could find. There were credit cards that were scattered all over the bottom of the dumpster like leaves. Fuck, that's a lot of credit cards. A checkbook was retrieved out of, out of another purse, and it had the, the name on it, Michelle Ainsley, on the top of the checks. The purse was filled with credit cards, pictures, and a driver's license. They decided to keep everything in the purse and give it to one of the boys' mothers so that they could turn it in. They found Courtney's wallet in the dumpster, too. They decided to gather all of these things, all the purses and wallets, and to keep searching for bottles in turn while they were going. They're like, we got to make money. We got to go this. find money. Duh. Like, dude, these are kids. They don't get it. At least they're honest and not like, fuck the bottles. We got these purses and wallets and shit. Let's go buy some stuff. Right. P.S. A burger, a hamburger was 28 cents and See? a cheeseburger was 38 cents. All right. So it was more, it was more than, than I expected, but still 38 cents for a cheeseburger fucking hit me. Give me five. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> And you too can be a fat ass for only two dollars and fifty cents. Did it? Boop. An airman went to the dumpster and saw the boys. 
They told him about the purses and the wallets. He wanted them to give him to him so that he could return them, but the boys insisted on keeping them. They finally let him have, they finally let him have Michelle's clutch purse. They're like, fuck you, we found it. Okay, fine, you can take one, we got the rest. The airman went over to the payphone. If you guys don't remember, I need you to, before cell phones, before pagers, before having access to any sort of public communication device, before the internet and the Wi-Fis, we had payphone bays or payphone booths where you could make collect calls or calls for five cents up to a quarter, depending on how far you were calling. I remember when they changed to 25 cents. I was like, the fuck? Or in junior high, it went to 35 cents. I was like, why? Yeah. Why? We were stuck at a quarter for a long time, but I remember in the 80s, like when my brothers would call home, it it was five cents. It was five cents to call, but if you were calling long distance, it was a quarter a minute. Yep. It was 25 cents for the first minute. Yeah, because I couldn't call my dad from a payphone because back then Roosevelt was... Mm-hmm. You Long had to call distance. collect. Yeah. And sure. calling collect meant that you were calling them and that they were going to pay the charges. It would be billed to the person you were calling. Yeah. So you dial zero and then you dial the number that you were going to call and they would be like, you are receiving a collect Let's call, call from. from. And you have to say your name. It's like calling jail. Yeah. Like you have to say your name and they say if they accept <laughs> it or not. That's how busted this shit is. It sounds like you call them from jail. Yep. Oh, goodness. Do you guys have a payphone bank? Bank of like payphones? A, like a row. Row phones. And I don't know if I'm getting any SIG on my pager. So he runs to the payphone, now that we all know what that is, and puts in a dime. He dials a number on the checks and asks for Michelle. The girl on the other line said that she wasn't there, and he explained that he had found her checkbook. The girl told him that Michelle had been murdered the night before. The woman on the other line started to interrogate him. He said that his name was Robert P. Weldon, that he was an airman stationed at Hill Air Force Base. And the woman on the phone said, said Michelle's brother would like to speak with him. The man interrogated him. And by the end of the phone call, they agreed to call the police. He was like, shit, I just found a checkbook. Fuck. Well, and, but you could, can, could you? Oh, yeah. Could you imagine? Could you imagine? Getting, could you? Like fielding the phone call when somebody's like, hey, man, I found Michelle's shit in, um, in the dumpster. And they're like, yeah, she was fucking murdered. Who are you? Yeah, who the fuck are you and how the fuck did you get it? Right. Yeah, I would be pissed. Corporal Fisher, who was a member of the Ogden Tax Squad, received a phone call. It was someone who said they knew who did the hi-fi murders. He said they drive a light blue Chevy van with mag wheels. One is short and his name is Dale Pierre. And the other man is William Andrews. Andrews is the one that has the van. The man on the phone said that he knew it was them because he heard them talking on the phone about it. And they said that they weren't going to leave any witnesses. Hmm. Maybe they should have planned a little fucking better. Not with a 25. Jesus Christ. They were not good criminals. They weren't. Gentlemen. You're not. You're not even gentlemen. Dickheads. You're not John Wick. You can't just show up with a fucking pencil and kill three dudes. The fucking pencil. Yes. A fucking (laughs) pencil. (laughs) No, because John Wick was a good bad guy. I love John Wick. You and me both. So he explained how he knew it was them. Do you want to tell me how? You got that book handy? Yes. Okay, this is what the caller had to say. A couple of months before this thing happened, Andrews and I were on barracks cleanup duty. We were both being punished for something. 
While we were working in the barracks there, he had come down to my room sometimes and I'd go up to his, kind of just got to be friendly. So I don't know, I guess this one night he needed a ride into town and he was tripping on some speed and other drugs. Aha. Uh Uh-huh. Right? You called it. He was a pretty heavy doper. Anyway, Uh, I had had my girlfriend with me. You know, you're not allowed to take girls back to the barracks, but we both went up and stopped and had some joints, right? Why not? Completely normal. He showed me his stereo he had and said, Pierre got that for me. So apparently Pierre stole a lot. And he showed me a lot of clothes and stuff Pierre had gotten for him. He thought that Pierre was a real neat guy. Then he showed me a couple of toy cars he kept his, he kept his drugs in. So oh. that he was hiding them in plain sight. To be fair. To be fair. It was really easy to shoplift in Utah, too. Oh, yeah. I didn't even know he kept his stuff right there. He was just bragging up everything. And I guess we were talking about how it would be nice to have money. And he told me about a bank that him and Pierre and somebody else had planned to rob. They had it all planned out, and they went and uh, reneged on it. Then after that, we somehow got talking about stereos, and for some reason, he said, quote, one of these days, I'm going to rob a hi-fi shop, and if anybody gets in my way, I'm going to kill him. I really don't... I really don't think Andrews would shoot anybody or make him do anything. I don't think he was smart enough. He was just kind of a screw-up. I didn't really know Pierre, and I'm glad I didn't. I think everybody did what they could to stay away from him. So, that's how this caller knew who it was. Hmm. He also told them that they lived in some barracks at 351 out at Hill at Hillfield. Andrew's room number is 218, and Pierre lives on the same floor, but I don't know his number. So, yeah, they, he told him he was calling from a payphone at Kmart, gave him his girlfriend's number, told him that he could find him if he needed to. Blah, blah, blah. Blah, 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 blah. Blah, blah, blah. Do not see. Blah, 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 blah. Fisher immediately told Greenwood. They found out that they couldn't arrest the two men unless the caller uh, with the info agreed to testify against them in court, which he agreed to do. Around 4 p.m., the news had gotten to offer Officer Judkins. He recalled a time that he had arrested an airman for car theft earlier that year. He was taking cars from car lots and pretending like he wanted to buy them. He had stolen three cars from three different dealerships in one week. He actually tried to tell one dealership that he was going to trade in a car that he had stolen from another dealership <laughs> on a Corvette. So he drives stolen oh, car goodness. to he, the he other had a plan. Yeah. He had a plan. He drives the first stolen car to the dealership to go test drive a Corvette and said he wanted to trade in that car. And so he so he had the car overnight or whatever, and then he finally brought it back and was like, well, I just think I'm going to buy something else. Well, the cops ended up finding out that the other vehicle was stolen from another car dealership, blah, blah. He ended up spending about six weeks in jail. And then at the time of these murders, he was on out on bail awaiting trial. He swore he was innocent the whole entire time. Uh-huh. They also found out that he had requested an early out from the Air Force. So this is like the time where they get to transition from Air Force to back to normal life. Mm -hmm. And he said the reason that he wanted out was 
the Air Force just wasn't for him. But this would also give him an honorable discharge. So he was trying to get out. Judkins finally remembered that it was Dale Pierre. Most of the officers knew what Dale Pierre looked like. However, they didn't have pictures of Andrews because he'd never been booked or anything, which is something they talked about in the basement. Uh, because it was the 70s and it was harder to communicate with each other, not all of the officers were up to speed what was, with what was going on. So some of them are still out trying to find out who the hell it is, and some of them already know who it was. Luckily for them, evidence about the men was coming from multiple different sources. So they all ended up with the information eventually and had enough evidence to arrest them. Unfortunately, the two men had left the base. They had driven to a lookout where they were arguing. A woman who lived close to the lookout heard them arguing, and she couldn't tell what they were saying, but she could see them. They argued for about 25 minutes before they departed. In the woman's statement the next day, she describes Pierre perfectly. She said that during the argument, he stood there with his hands in his pockets. So just after 10 p.m., an arrest and search warrant were issued. They went in with a plan of attack, sharpshooters on the balcony to cuff up cut off any escape routes, and a defense perimeter was formed. They were unaware of which barracks Pierre and Andrew were hiding in, but they were pretty sure that the two men were still inside. A light blue Chevy van was spotted moving across the base, headed for the west gate. An agent yelled, They got to the van and they're trying to escape! Air Force security agents closed in on them. They ordered the two men out of the van and had them at gunpoint. Sadly, they had the wrong van and the wrong guys. Son of a bitch. During that commotion, the right guys were captured and they were taken into custody. Andrews was in his room, but Pierre was trying to make the getaway. Another airman told officers where he was and they were able to cuff him and take him into take him into custody. They had kept the men separate. Andrews was telling officers that they had gone into town the night before with another airman named Keith Roberts. They dropped him off in town, went to a movie, grabbed a six pack and were back in bed by midnight. Pierre stayed quiet in his car. He only spoke to give directions off the base. Word had gotten out pretty quickly, and there were over 200 Ogden citizens. What? Waiting at the jail. Sorry, I didn't finish my sentence. No, you didn't. That's okay. It's overrated. It really just is. Over-explanation. Just leave some shit up to the imagination, Nikki. So basically, Andrews is trying to throw Keith Roberts under the bus. So we haven't heard a whole lot about Keith Roberts, but keep him in mind because he really was involved, but not. Yeah. So the interrogation was a joke. Andrews again said that they were at the movie the night before. Another airman had seen them at the movie on Saturday evening, too. So he just rolled with it and was like, so, yeah, I went to the same movie both nights. It was a good movie. Yeah, it went Saturday and Sunday. Two times. Had Two times. Twice, back to back. With the same people both yes. times. Because that's what we do. Like when I was 13, I went to Jurassic Park twice, but <laughs> I mean, I Stop don't. It. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that was a good movie. I could see going to that one twice. I went three times. I'm not going to lie. Jesus, Nikki. Two nights in a row, and then one more time later. Huh. I liked it. All right. He also said that he'd been at the hi-fi shop on Saturday. So if his prints were on everything, that's why. Because he basically touched everything in the store. What you guys fail to understand is that when I go into a hi-fi store, I must systematically touch everything. It's part of my OCD. I have to touch everything at least four um, times. (laughs) You sound like my brother. 
<laughs> God. I have rituals. Yes, I do. The reality of what he had done seemed to hit him at this point. It was also very apparent that he was afraid of Pierre. Pierre being the, the short man. The man that bayoneted somebody in the fucking face. Yeah, there's a little bit of a reason to be like, afraid. Like, this guy actually has, like, a legitimate history of violence. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I could see being afraid of this dude. Yep. After about 30 minutes, he told them that he couldn't help them anymore. He was like, sorry, guys, I can't help you anymore. And they said, um, you can't or you won't. And he said, both. Like, I'm done. We're done here. I'm bored of you now. Yeah, pretty much. At this point, they had evidence from the dumpster, all the wallets and shit that they got out of there. Um, They had the suspects in custody, but they were missing a big part. There was the stereo equipment that was stolen. Seems like a pretty reasonable piece of evidence to want to have. The barracks were being searched. Ooh, importante. Importante. <laughs> there was definitely evidence found there, but not the money or the stereo equipment. There was like a bloody shirt and like just random little things that was like, yeah, got it. Like, like there's clearly enough there for them to be like, look. Yeah. Where's the rest? Mm-hmm. They searched everything, and they got it down to just searching under the carpet. So they moved furniture, lifted carpet. Most of the team was tired because they hadn't slept for two days. And they were like, what are you going to find under the carpet? Stereo equipment? And one of the officers was like, no, I'm staying here. I'm going to search under all of this carpet because I'm going to find something. And he eventually did. But what did he find? Because he found it. He found it? Found it. I find it. He found it. it. I fo- did you just board it? I, did you ford it? They found a rental agreement for Wasatch Storage. Mm-hmm. The name on the agreement was none other than Dale Pierre. He had rented the unit on April 22nd, which is the day of the goddamn murders. <laughs> you the idiot. day. The fucking the day. day. Like, you couldn't have gone and done that six weeks, 30 days, 10 days in advance. Use a fucking alias? I don't know. Make one of your friends put it in their names? Anything but that. Jesus Christ. Dude, you're kind of sus right now. Yeah, you're (laughs) super sus, man. (laughs) A warrant was obtained. Oh, sorry. A search warrant was obtained for the storage unit. And? The key for the keychain. The the key for the keychain. The key was on the keychain. Yes. That was taken from Pierre when he was arrested. Outstanding. Yes. So? So... Guess what was in the storage unit? I'm going to assume a large amount of stereo equipment. How did you know? Well, <clears throat> what I did with was my small woman some- <laughs> brain, I took some of the evidence and I pulled it all together. <laughs> what I did was, I don't know if you remember this game, but it's called Connect the Dots. Uh, yes. La 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 la. Connect the Dots. La 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 la. <laughs> so, they, you know what? Uh, anyway. Anyway. The mystery liquid was yes. also found. Yes, it was because it was still in there with the drinking cup. The little green drinking cup. And it was a large, half full bottle of Drano. So this is what's tearing up their insides. Fucking liquid plumber. Like one of the most corrosive materials. Go watch a Drano commercial if you need just a visual of what it does to your pipes. I can only imagine how that felt. 
going oh, down your throat. God damn. <clears throat> or being in your mouth. The f- You know what? So I envision Mr. Oren as kind of like a Clint Eastwood motherfucker. For real. Like old but tough as nails because that dude had a pen in his fucking ear. He'd also been shot. He'd also had liquid plumber fucking Drano dumped into his mouth. So And, and choked. He, right. Lifted and, up by his entire body weight by his neck. And he was put together enough to continue having a conversation with the police following his uh, finger quote rescue with this you know that there's chemical burns all over his mouth all over like up in his nose in his mouth he had chemical burns where he like spit it out and pretended to throw it up on his shoulder Mm, i don't like it yeah dude fucking anyway so The trials didn't begin until October 15th. They went on for a month. For. For. For a month. The defense attorney tried to get Courtney to testify, but he suffered from retrograde amnesia and couldn't remember anything from that night. It was a miracle that he was even doing as well as he was. Like, they had to later on tell him that his mom died because he didn't know. Like, he woke up. He was, like, asking for her. He was like, where's where's mom? Where is she? And they had to tell her that she was murdered and he was there. And it was pretty bad. Yeah. Oren Walker, however, did take the stand. He pointed at Pierre and Andrews. He did the, that's the man, you know. That fucking guy right there. That guy right fucking there. That short dude with the big fucking forehead. That fucking guy right there. (laughs) Yeah. That's, they kept explaining him as like a big forehead. Short man with a big forehead. I wonder if he had, if it was more along the lines if he had like a bad haircut or a right. receding hairline as well as like a garage door for a forehead. Because mm-hmm. I got a lot of forehead too. Me and Ronnie both. Like that is the one thing that is unproportionate about our faces. I got a whole ass like hand worth I really do too. Of fucking for I got a big fucking forehead. And I think I'd rather have a big forehead than a not enough forehead mm-hmm. where like you can't fiddle with your fucking eyebrows or Yeah. 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 I don't know. Anyway. You, what ugh. It reminds <laughs> me of how they um in Epstein Filthy Rich. I still haven't watched it. Oh fuck, dude. It's filthy. Uh, one the way that they continually like all the girls described his penis as like egg shaped, like really skinny at the top and then thick in the middle and towards the base. That they call like oh god when they're talking, but they consistently are like egg shaped penis, and I'm like, what the fuck? I, can I just have a picture of that? Not that I, I want to see, but <clears throat> I can't make this work in my brain. I, uh, uh. yeah. So when they keep like, that's how you know you're in trouble, dude. When everybody talks about your forehead, you know you're in trouble. Mm-hmm. If you are recognizable by your forehead alone. All right. So. So, Oren, after he pointed at Pierre and Andrews, he told the jury about Carol Nesbitt, the Drano, the shootings, Michelle's rape, and how he stayed alive through um, all the ways that they tried to kill him. But he cried as he talked about his son being murdered right, right next to him. Oh, sorry. I was actually like, you do that thing where you start like trying to put yourself in that position. Yeah, and then you're like, no, abort. <clears throat> I don't. Pull out. I, I know. <laughs> <laughs> Fucking mayday, mayday, mayday. Get out of your feelings. <laughs> yeah. Like you ASAP, man choice. overboard. Yeah. Like, oh. Um, went in too far. I think that Oren did the right thing by remaining still and feigning 
dead mm-hmm. uh, because he was later able to make sure that the two men responsible for the death and the rape, you know. And there was no question because right, he was right there. He was a victim. Yeah. Um, I don't know that I would have the fortitude to keep myself under control if I heard bad things happening to my kid right next to me. Mm-mm. I think I would freak out and try every way possible to stop that from happening because my instinct is to never let anything bad happen to my kid. Could you imagine what would happen if they, if he did die? So say he died and they all got just left down in the basement and nobody ever found him. I guess the wife still came to look for him. Right. But how long would it have been like, oh, and what if the son would have gone downstairs and found all of that? The 16-year-old boy that was there, what if he, because he's the one that kicked in the door, what if he would have gone down and found all of that with his dad dead along with his brother? Right. Holy shit. Yeah, dude. Byron took the stand to talk about the injuries of his son, Courtney. Pierre later said that he couldn't remember Byron's testimony because he was trying to get sympathy from the jury. He said that he had taken a volume to deal with it. He said that he had to take another one when he saw the pictures of the victims because it was so gross. Because he was trying to play innocent. Like, yeah. oh my God, like this guy was up there just boo-hooing about his kid and he was totally just <laughs> trying to get the sympathy card. And then I had to take a volume to deal with that motherfucker. And then when they showed the pictures of what some sick son of a bitch did, I had to take another Valium. <laughs> Who the fuck has given you Valium, you piece of shit? Uh, I don't know. So Friday, November 15th, was the last day of the testimonies, and the jury had started to do their deliberating. The prisoners were taken back to their cells, but most everyone else spent the night in the courtroom. At 5 a.m. on set, could you imagine? Like, fuck it. They're deliberating. Like, I'm not leaving this courtroom until they come back with the the verdict. And right here on this uncomfortable wooden piece of shit bench, this is where I'm going to stay. I still think that fucking Orin is a serious badass. Yeah. So on Saturday morning at 5 a.m., the jury returned with their verdict. Pierre was found guilty on all five counts, three for first degree murder and two for aggravated robbery. Andrews was given the same. Their buddy Roberts, who drove the van and was convicted of two counts of robbery. So he wasn't in the story so much earlier because he was literally just chilling out outside. So here's my thing about that. I have a sneaking suspicion that he did know what was happening in there. And he chose, obviously, you're going to hear the gunshots. Oh, okay. yeah. And especially if you're in an alley, because I happen to know from firsthand experience that gunshots echo wildly in alleyways, mm-hmm. and especially when they're coming from fucking brick basements and shit. Like, you fucking hear that. I know that it should muffle the noise. Mm, doesn't. <clears throat> the other thing is, that took some time, okay? It was supposed to be a fucking robbery. They were supposed to get in, take shit, and get the fuck out. That was hours and hours of shit. So you have to know that like Andrews and Pierre both, because they kept going from the basement back upstairs, right? So you would have, one would assume or suspect, you sus motherfucker, that they were going outside to talk to their getaway driver, Roberts. And here's my question. And maybe this was in there and I missed it, but I don't remember reading anything about it. 
where the fuck was he when Carol Nesbitt came? Mm-hmm. And when Orin, I almost said Orin Hatch, speaking of Utah. Oh, How about God. Orin, whatever his name is. Just say Orin Walker. When Orin Walker showed up. Where was he? Did he leave? Did did he so just did sit? they did they was he literally just sitting in the van not paying attention? I don't know. I don't know. It's it's one of those things like where was he parked? Did they park somewhere else and walk to the back door or did they go to the front door? Like did they check this door and come back this way and but you like still again, dude, you have a it's an excellent point to think about because he was the fucking getaway driver. Like, shouldn't you be keeping lookout? Shouldn't anything suspicious like mm, unplanned guests or the police or shouldn't you be looking for that shit? Well, and if he was parked back in the alley, just right? sitting in the car like he's supposed to. He would have saw Courtney. Well, not even that. The mom mm-hmm. and Oren both came in through the front door, so he wouldn't have seen them. Like, what if he was just sitting and chilling in the van? And maybe, like I said, maybe I skipped But Courtney this went part. in the back door. Like, No, he tried to go out the back door, and that's when they stopped uh, him. Did he come in the front door? He came in the front door and tried to go out the back door because he was trying to get uh, to the alleyway to his car. Okay. So... I think he knew about the murders because they tried him for the murders. They just didn't have enough evidence that he was involved in any way to convict him of the murders. So right. he only got convicted of the. Well, and rightfully so. But I just I have a sneaking suspicion that that dude knew much more than what he. Like he may not have participated, but you dude, when when somebody when Pierre said that he went in with the intent not to leave any um, witnesses. Yeah. He knew. Dude, you were planning ahead. Like, if somebody was there, if anybody gave you any shit, like, even if somebody didn't give you shit, clearly. The penalty phase of the hearing was held November 20th. They were going to determine whether the pair would get a life sentence or execution. In Utah, at this time, 140 people had been found guilty of first-degree murder. 79 got life, 61 got death, and 31 had actually been executed. Hmm. Just so you know, we don't fuck around in Utah. Firing squad. We still have the firing squad. So we don't fuck around in Utah. We actually do execute motherfuckers. And apparently they have the same process. So when it's a firing squad, they have five of the sharpshooters and they all have a, like they're, they're all aiming for the chest of the inmate and only one of them is given live round. Seven, six, two millimeter full metal jacket. No, I don't, I don't actually know what fucking ammunition Oh, I was or like, like, what damn. caliber? Yeah, I I was actually just reciting some shit from Jarhead or whoop, oh. Full Metal Jacket. Yeah, Derp. I was like, are you sure Jarhead? Because hey, man, I'm tired. I've been a- <laughs> no, it's not Jarhead. I'm not 100 percent sure why I said that. Maybe it's because it's the Marine Corps' birthday. It is. Ooh raw. Just Ooh, kidding. <laughs> raw devil dogs. I know. Clint. Here's your excuse to be day drunk at like all day. Not you, Clint. Just kidding. You're, <laughs> sorry, you're on restriction. Anyway. So in Utah, 61 death penalty, 31 actually, 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 actually executed. Fucking I hate that about myself. The last execution was March 30th of 1960. They were both given dum, 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 the death penalty. Oh my gosh. I didn't see that coming. I did. Okay, I did. All right. 
The day that this happened was Courtney's first day out of the hospital. He could finally take one step. He was still being fed by a feeding tube, and his right eye stared blindly to the side. He eventually returned to school a few hours a day. He had surgery to get a new esophagus so that he could eventually eat on his own. He loved being at the hospital and would get mad when they tried to take him home. Yeah, he didn't like going home because at home he just like kind of had to hang out and... There was one person that took care of him when he was at the hospital. He had all his friends and all the nurses, and he liked wonder, it there. Yeah, well, and you know, when you go home and mom's not there and there's pictures or you can still smell a person, that fucked me up. Yeah, and dad... The first time that I like went into my dad's house after he passed away and I could still smell my dad in the house. And then I can't remember what I picked up and like what I was fiddling with, but I, I could smell my dad's like shampoo and body soap. Mm-mm. And it like pushed me over the edge it was uh i don't know that that's tricky as fuck yeah so um um, but this is kind of like so this is where i threw this out is because so in that movie um aftermath a test of love is it talks about dealing with courtney's injuries and like emotional shit like not just physical fucking aftermath but emotional, mental, like everything. Um, at one point in the, and this was like a made for TV movie. Yeah. Um, but if you can find it, definitely check it out because I thought it was interesting. But at one point in time, like the only thing that this kid would say or could say was damn. And they called him damn, damn. And like his dad was like, please don't fucking call him that. Like his other siblings were like, please don't call him that. But that damn, 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 damn. You know? Yeah. There's a chapter in the book called damn it. Yep. So it's, um, It's unfortunate, but this is kind of like when we were talking about, look, when we bring him, like if we keep him alive, we could be creating a monster. Yeah, it could be This is kind of what I'm talking about. When people who were um, of sound mind and body, okay, I'm not trying to, like, I want to be careful with my words, so I'm not being offensive, but don't word police me. Fucking hate that. Uh, Mm. You'll hear me go off about that as well. When you take a person that was able-bodied, and of sound mind, both mentally and emotionally and spiritually and shit, and you fuck them up like that, and they are then trapped, and you don't really know where they are mentally because they can't communicate effectively. They're, they have damage literally inside and out. Mm-hmm. So when a person has that kind of trauma, like... Fuck, can you imagine how like confusing and frustrating and overwhelming and like those are all the emotions that create angry people yep. and angry people that can't communicate fucking lash out, man. Yep. Like my mom. Yep. Yeah. So there's the movie and then the book. Right. And they explain a lot more about Courtney. Like I really just kind of skimmed it to give you a little bit of an overview of where he was at. But there is a whole lot more that goes with it. Oh, yeah. So a little, a little over a year after the attack, he went flying again with the help of his instructor. He graduated high school May 7th. Excuse me. He graduated high school on May 27th, 1976. He walked the line on his own and passed away June 4th, 2002 at the age of 44. I guess he tried to go to college too, but he had to drop out because of his, he had too much brain um, damage and he just couldn't. Like traumatic brain injury Mm. shit. Yeah. Um. I could see where, depending on the, like, severity of the injury, yeah, man, like, fuck, that would probably be too much. Yeah. Uh, Oren Walker died February 13th, 2000. 
So this book was written eight years after the murder. So at the time, Pierre and Andrews were still sitting on death row. Um, according to Murderpedia, and I'm, I don't know how, you know, but usually dates and shit of, of deaths are right. That's where I got it. And I looked at a few other places and, the, and it, it worked out. Uh, Pierre and Andrews became notoriously hated prisoners amongst the black, even amongst the black population. People didn't fucking like them. As you could imagine, if, when they found out what they did, no. They were particularly rivaled on death row, especially by Gary Gilmore, who was also facing capital. Ooh. That's a different kind. <laughs> it's, a, it's a lot harsher than capital. It really is. Yep. He was also facing capital punishment and imprisoned at the same facility. His final words to his fellow inmates before being taken to face the firing squad were, quote, I'll see you in hell, Pierre and Andrews. That's how much he fucking hated them. I so, love it. Even in even in prison, they're hated. Gilmore's reportedly <laughs> Gilmore is reported to have laughed at Pierre and Andrews as he passed by their cells. So Dale Pierre was executed by lethal injection on August twenty eighth, nineteen eighty seven, and William Andrews was executed by lethal injection on July thirtieth, nineteen ninety two. So. Thoughts on, um, so thoughts on why you think Andrews and Pierre were so, like, so hated amongst the black, like, the entire population of the prison, but including. I think that Pierre was just a pain in the ass because nobody in this story liked him. Nobody that ever came across him liked him. He was an asshole. He was like a nonchalant little lion piece of shit that thought he did no wrong, but was really just a total asshole. So I'm sure he was, I bet he shit talked like a son of a bitch, like just shit talked and couldn't back it up. I kind of wonder if it's that thing where like, there are some crimes that are unforgivable. Uh-huh. Kind of like being a like a pedophile or a baby child. Oh, yeah. Like a kid fiddler in prison. Like, you know that you're going to get fucking beat. I wonder if it's the same thing for, like, rapists. Oh, I'm sure it because, is. Because, like, if you... It kind of... Wrote, this People are going to fucking laugh at me, but it reminds me of that scene out of Con Air. Where yep. he's like, ah... Uh, and he calls it, you know, Juanito 23. You know, and he's, ta- he's like, yeah, I'm Johnny 23. And he's the fucking rapist. He had a heart mm-hmm. on his arm for every rape he'd committed. And he was like, I fucking despise rapists. Mm-hmm. I, and he's like talking about like how he thinks that you're worse than the scum in the corner of your mouth when you get tight. And he's like, if your dick jumps out of your pants, you jump out of this plane. Because there was a female CEO on the plane. That's kind of how I envision it is like, A, yep. you went in there. <clears throat> like, I don't think people necessarily frown on murderers. Uh, especially on fucking death row. Because most of them are. Right. But I think that if you're a fucking kid fiddler or a fucking rapist. And he basically was both. Both. Because she was 19. She was, dude. Ah. And then you killed a 16-year-old kid. Right. They were totally innocent. There was no reason. Plus a, a, a woman, a mother. So I think that when you kill kids and rape women... And then on top of being a psychopath asshole, it's like the perfect storm for everybody to be like, you're a, you're a cunt. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah. Sadly, I think Andrews was more just like the, he's like the unfortunate sidekick where well, like they came in together, they did the crime together. 
And he's the dumb one. He's the dumb one that follows Pierre around. He's the big guy with the Get muscles. Get better idols. Yeah, that <laughs> follows around the little scary. That's just so you know, that's a Bailey. A, she does makeup and murder and mm. shit. Love her. I love Bailey. She, that's her shit. Get better idols. Yeah. Which is a great one. It is. So check her out too, because we like her. Yeah. She's genuine. Yeah, but I think on top of what you said, plus their attitudes, like right, it was just towards all of it. Like, oh, he was up there fucking boohooing about his kid dying. Yeah, <laughs> and so can you imagine his that attitude all the time? But yeah, that's uh, that's what I think. Hmm. Hmm. And you know that even after, and this is an afterthought, but even after they brought in. Um, What's Courtney's mom's name? Carol. Well, mm-hmm. After they brought in Carol, she still had all of those rings on. Well, obviously, because they said that after they, they identified her by With the With the little ring. emerald ring. And she had her big old wedding ring on mm-hmm. and the Rolex still. Mm-hmm. Like, you know our radio station that used to have, like, I don't listen to it anymore, but they had the dumb criminals thing? Oh, yeah. What the, were they smoking? Yeah. Tell me, what were they smoking? That's what they remind me of. Like, how fucking dumb can you get? And if it was supposed to be a heist, like if it was supposed to be robbery, you left some pretty expensive pieces, you know? For real. Like, don't get me wrong. I guess stereo... I know stereo equipment's fucking expensive. I know what the shit costs. Especially back then. Fuck. (laughs) I remember putting my first CD player in my fucking car. Yeah. God damn. Thankfully, my brother used to work at an electronics store. Oh. Electronics. 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 Yeah. He worked for a place called Boyer's Auto Mall doing car stereo installation. So thankfully, and also my brother has like weird hobbies where he like collects things like limited edition stereo equipment. Like the Alpine 7909 and shit. Like it's, I don't know. He's fucking strange. I can't say shit because I collect stupid shit too. So. All right. So, um, maybe don't rape and murder and rob people. And stay out of chalk lines. Goodbye. I decided to get a pet for the kitchen. I'm going to get a fish. Oh. Like, I'm going to get a little fish tank to... Are we naming him Sleezer? No. Swim Shady. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to get, like, a really sketchy fucking Oscar. Hi, my name is... That's why they call me Swim Shady. I'm back. <sighs> I'm back. Yeah, so I... wish I, I didn't get rid of my fish tank. I want... Like, well, no, I just want, like, a really... A yeah. And maybe get, like, a beta or one sketchy-ass aggressive angelfish or something. You know what I mean? Swim shady. Swim shady. I like it. Yeah. I'm a fucking child. I am, right. too. That's why I got so excited when you said it. Yeah. It's not an original thought. I just want to put that out there. But I, I thought it was care. clever, and I'm fucking taking yep. it. I found I like it on Reddit. It. I don't know whose thought it is. I don't care. I don't care either. I like it, and I like it. I want another fish named Sushi. Mm-hmm. And then I want another little fish, and I'm going to call him shark bait. Oh. Swim shady. Oh, sushi. Uh-huh. 
and sharp bang. Ooh, ha, ha. <laughs> All right. Uh, 